This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. Audiologists are healthcare professionals who identify, assess, and manage disorders of hearing, balance, and other neural systems. Being a deaf audiologist can help these healthcare professionals relate to their patients, but what about when an audiologist is both deaf and blind? In this episode, we're joined by my friend, colleague, and forever student, Dr. Jasmine Simmons, a black audiologist who has Usher syndrome, a rare genetic disease that affects both hearing and vision and causes deafness or hearing loss, and an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa. Jasmine Simmons is from Columbus, Ohio. She graduated from the University of Akron with an undergraduate degree and later earned her doctorate of audiology from Central Michigan University. But her journey is much more than academia, it's a testament to resilience. Dr. Simmons faces a rare challenge, Usher syndrome. It affects her vision, hearing, and balance. Born profoundly deaf, she wears a cochlear imprint, unlocking the world of sound. Her personal journey fuels her empathy as an audiologist. She personally understands the emotional toll of hearing and vision loss, forging a deep connection with her patients. For Dr. Simmons, it's not just about diagnosing and treating, it's about empowering individuals, especially black and brown children, to rise above their circumstances. Dr. Simmons is co-founder of the Black Audiologists United, a Facebook group, a Facebook group that fosters a community of black audiologists and audiology students to feel seen and included in spaces that were not designed for them. Currently, she works at a nonprofit clinic where she channels her expertise to give back to the community. Dr. Simmons also takes to the stage as a public speaker, raising awareness about hearing loss and deaf blindness. Beyond her clinical and advocacy work, Jasmine is an inspiring author. She's working on a children's book series that sheds light on Usher Syndrome's challenges and triumphs, aiming to inspire young minds. Dr. Jasmine Simmons, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Let's get uncomfortable. Dr. Jasmine Simmons, welcome. It's such an honor to have you here. I hope all is well. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. And I'm very excited to be here with you guys today. We're excited to have you. Let's just get into it. Jasmine, talk a little bit about your journey to college, because we always talk about to and through college. Talk about that journey and the role your parents and your family played, especially helping you and your brother deal with your deafness and to deal with the life of a cochlear implant. The deaf community is interesting. At least I know that. And so there's certain feels about cochlears and that transition about having that. Talk about that journey to college and how that played out for you in particular. Absolutely. So when I was born, I was born profoundly deaf. And at the time, it was in 1994, and cochlear implantation was FDA approved at 1990. So it was still very relatively new 
Absolutely. It was FDA approved in 1990 for pediatrics. So it was relatively new. And so my parents had to make a decision on putting their child through a surgical procedure. So my brother was born in 1992. So he got his cochlear implant in 1994. And then when they learned I was deaf as well, they decided to implant me as well. Although my brother was implanted, it was still a difficult decision to make because they had no idea what the outcomes were going to be. They hoped that we would be able to hear cars uh, crossing the street um, at our house. So that way we can go to the playground across the street. So that was their initial hope. And when we were able to hear a whole lot more, it exceeded their imagination on what we could do with our hearing abilities with the cochlear implant. So as we got older, our parents really pushed us and encouraged us to be the best versions of ourselves and not let our disability hold us back. They always pushed us and was if we use our disability as an excuse, they were like, absolutely not. You're going to do it regardless of your hearing loss. You're going to do it. So because of their persistence and motivation, um, it, really led into my success, you know, graduating from high school, college, and into my doctoral degree program. Mm. Well, and you're you're an audiologist. So um, for people who, first off, if you can explain to us a little bit about what, for people who don't know what a cochlear implant is, and talk a little bit about, you know, some of the culture around it, what are some of the challenges? I know you've shown me pictures of your first cochlear implant and what you have now. And it's like looking at a car from the 1970s and a car from 2023. So talk a little bit about what a cochlear is, what it does, um, and some of the consistent challenges within the community about the acceptance now. And I, I think some of those challenges have went down a little bit, but just just give us give us some background. Basically, what a cochlear implant is, it is a surgical procedure. So the surgeon will put a electrode on the skull. Now, it does not pass the skull. It's just onto the skull. And then they insert the electrode ray into your hearing organ. So it essentially replaces the hair cells in your hearing organ. And instead of listening acoustically, you are now listening uh, through electrical signals. So basically there's an internal piece and external piece and they communicate with with each other. And that's how someone can be able to hear through a cochlear implant. So people often ask me, how do, what do I hear? And I always tell people, I, I hear naturally. I was born deaf. That's all I know. People's voices sounds different to me. I can tell a male voice is speaking. I can tell a woman's voice speaking. I can tell a children. I can distinguish who is talking with my cochlear implant. So is wonderful technology is not a cure by any means. It's not perfect. 
there are still times I am not able to understand and fall along. And I have to ask people to repeat what they say. Um, so it's definitely not a cure for all. With the deaf community, there is a controversy with cochlear implants. Some people who are what we call a capital D deaf. There is capital D deaf who is people are involved in the deaf culture. And then there's lowercase D deaf who are who identify as medically deaf. And I am little D deaf. So for some people in the deaf culture, they may feel cochlear implant is something that is trying to fix them and they don't want to be fixed. They see it as it's part of their identity and who they are. And I totally 100% respect that. And so from my perspective, I'm a little D deaf. I love having my cochlear implant. I wouldn't change it. However, I do respect people having a decision if they want to get a cochlear implant or if they want to be in a deaf culture, because that's so important. You, they need to have that choice. And we live in a world that we deserve to have choices in regarding what we want to go about our hearing needs and communication needs. No, it's really good. And I, I think I kind of, it layers on so many other things that we're going to get into, but the reality is people aren't broken, right? And so mm -hmm. that's what I've heard from the deaf community is that some feel like, well, we're not, we, we don't have a disability, we just have different abilities, right? Absolutely. And so the reality is then we're using science to correct brokenness in some people's minds when the reality is in other people's minds it's just about safety and quality of life and things like that so Absolutely. you really did a great job of of highlighting that for us so now you're an audiologist right when did you decide you were going to be an audiologist and tell us a little bit what an audiologist does absolutely um when i was in seventh grade I went through my little midlife crisis. <laughs> I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And I just knew I wanted to help people. I just, I just knew that was what I was destined to do. So I was in the car with my mom having a conversation. I was like, I really don't know what I want to do. And she looked at me and was like, why not become an audiologist? And at that moment, it just stuck with me. I was like, huh wow, that's, that's exactly what I'm meant to be and what I'm meant to do. So I just held on to that goal from 13 years old. And I was determined once I have something set in my mind, I am going to accomplish that goal. So um, about 13 years later, yeah, 13, 14 years later, I went and graduated with my doctoral degree and became an audiologist. And so what an audiologist do, does, we assess hearing imbalance. We also treat hearing uh, losses if um, someone want, wants it to be treated. So we do hearing aids, we do cochlear implants, we also assess tinnitus, and tinnitus is basically ringing or buzzing, hissing in the ears 
We also do auditory processing disorders. So we do a lot of different things and we just want to make sure we assess patients based on what they, how they want to be assessed. Well, and you are so dang intersectional, you know, who you are, you're a black woman, you're deaf, you're all the things, right? And so talk about, because you and I talked off mic about this, how being deaf and now having this vision loss that's happening that we're going to talk about, and also being a black woman and also having a partner and all these things, how does this make you a better audiologist and relate with your patients better? Um, I'm sure you see people that will only come to Dr. Jasmine. So talk about not just the hearing loss piece, but the whole piece of your identity that is so unique in the space, which sometimes we wish it wasn't so doggone unique, but everything about you, how that you feel like, do you feel like that makes you a better audiologist? Talk about that a little bit. Being an audiologist, being a healthcare professional uh, as a person of color is huge. We hear stories about, you know, the BIPOC community gets lack of proper care and treatment just because of their skin color. So being an audiologist has been so rewarding from person of color standpoint. I When I call my patients back and they see the fact that I'm a person of color, they see a black woman, you can see the relief on their faces, just knowing that you know, they don't have to be discriminated just because of their skin tone. So it's just amazing experience to be able to relate and to be able to understand and just make sure that patient is being heard, seen, and validated. Those are the three important things because I personally have gone to different eye doctor's appointments And I left that office not feeling heard or validated or even seen. So I made sure I carried that experiences over into my clinical practice and made sure that my patients feel that they are being represented, that they feel they're they're being heard because I felt that way and I never want to make sure my patients feel that way. It's so good. Yeah. What were your three again that you said seen, heard, and validated? Yes, sir. I love it. I love it. So proud of you. Talk a little bit about your practice because you work at a nonprofit, right? You could be out, you know, shout out to all of our nonprofit folks. But the truth is you got people of student loan debt, people of all these other things, and you've chosen to be in practice at a nonprofit clinic that can provide some of that healthcare access to kind of break those cycles. Talk a little bit about why you chose to do be in practice at a nonprofit space and how that maybe differs from some of the pro- for-profit clinics that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. So when I learned that the nonprofit uh, serves underserved population, that was one of the things that drew me in. I remember when I was a graduate student, I went to Detroit BA and I did a rotation there. And 
we were doing a hearing aid fitting and I saw a brown hearing aid. I was looking at the hearing aid. I was very confused and I, I couldn't figure out why. And then it dawned on me. I have never seen a brown hearing aid because I've been fitting so many people who were not in the BIPOC community. And so I've gotten so used to seeing just beige hearing aids. So when I went to this nonprofit clinic, I see brown hearing aids every day and I feel accepted as a healthcare professional at that clinic because I've worked in other settings and I felt like as a healthcare professional that I had to continuously prove myself and prove my knowledge and prove my worth as a healthcare provider. So at being at a nonprofit clinic, I feel like the walls are down, my guard is down. And so it's just amazing. It's not only beneficial to the patients, it's also beneficial to me as well. So it's a very rewarding job. And I just truly enjoy being able to help patients here. And we also have a program where we give them free say hearing aids if they meet the income restrictions and um, they must live in Jacksonville and they get free say hearing aids. So just seeing these people's faces light up and, you know, when they come back in for their follow-up visits, they are telling me stories. Oh, yeah, I... I'm able to understand my grandkids. So, you know, now I'm able to work and understand my colleagues just because of these hearing aids. And people take hearing for granted and they don't truly understand the importance of hearing until they lose it. So when it's being brought to them, they find that sense of happiness and fulfillment. So it's just absolutely a rewarding job. Love it. Well, and I think that, you know, there's this old adage, right? When when you have a bad experience, you tell 10 people. When you have a good one, you tell one. Mm-hmm. Now, people have heard in the get uncomfortable space that that doesn't apply to black and brown folks. When we have a good experience, we tell 100 people because we don't have the privilege of assuming good experiences, right? Yeah. So we're still a front porch community. We aren't back deck people. And so privilege makes people assume all their experiences are going to be good. And then they tell people if they don't have a good one, especially in the healthcare space. I can imagine your organization, your clinic, and you get all these referrals from people like, girl, you know, I had, and she, and all the things, right? Because for us, we are still very community, communica- communicative oriented, front porch, but we don't have the privilege to assume good experiences. So when we have good ones, you have all a Duval coming to see Dr. Jasmine because they're like, okay. And then people say, well, I'm not going to see anybody else. My cousin told me to see Dr. Jasmine. So I can imagine how rewarding that feels. And then on top of it, you're deaf. What do your patients see say when they find out, you know, when they're losing hearing and then they find out the person who is their doc who's working with them is also deaf? Sometimes I disclose my hearing loss and sometimes I don't. It just 
depends on the situation because I don't want to always make people feel like it's about me. It's about the patient. So if I feel the patient needs to hear that, I will disclose my hearing loss. I will share with them because a lot of times it's stigmatized hearing loss and aging. Oh, you know, I'm getting old. So I come in, I'll tell patient, listen, hearing loss can impact anyone. It can impact children. It can impact young adults. It can impact older adults. Uh, And I usually will share that I was born deaf. And sometimes they're like, oh my goodness, like I didn't know, like I couldn't tell. So I'm like, exactly. So just it's okay to accept the the fact that you have a hearing loss. And sometimes people are just not ready. And if you're not ready, I will just back off and let them go home, think about it. And I'm here when you need me. So Well, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about the word belonging. Mm-hmm. Not just that you are intentional in ensuring your pa- your patients are centered and you're not centering yourself, and but you're intentional in ensuring that they have a sense of belonging and how the clinic, the patients, your colleagues have created a sense of belonging for you, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about how important belonging had to have been in your undergraduate and graduate journeys. Talk a little bit about the sense of belonging, the support that you received in undergraduate, graduate school that helped you be successful. Absolutely. Um, During my undergrad career, I had such an amazing support system. Um, When I I did the Choose Ohio First program, I just had that amazing support and I didn't feel left out or left behind because of my disability or because of all these potential statistics, negative statistics that, that were counting against me. I felt seen and heard as well when my, during my undergrad. And for same as graduate school, I felt very supported by my professors. I remember when I first started my class with one of my professors, she asked me if I could talk to her after class. And she told me, I never worked with a student with a profound hearing loss. How can I be a support of you? And that was instrumental. Like that was just something I still remember to this day. And it was just amazing the fact that she took the time to, you know, educate herself and ask me what my needs are. Because I always tell people every person may not require the require the same accommodations. So each person may ask for something different. So I appreciate it that my professor at that time took the time out of her day to explain or to ask what I needed. What surprised me was my peers. Some of my peers did not understand how to interact with someone with a hearing loss, although they were going into that field. So that was what was 
more so surprising to me. Um, not everybody, it was just a few. So it was, I had to take the time to educate them to how they can treat someone with hearing loss. And, um, and, and people that, that wanted to be, that are going to school to be audiologists. Yes, sir. We're struggling with, it's like somebody who's studying women and gender or somebody who's studying AFAM or studies, you know, race and gender work, having to have the black woman or the, the queer guy or the intersectional identity brown person explain to them, well, you, you went into this work, bro. I mean, you went into this work. Why? You know, um, that that's a hard piece for you. I still think about and for y'all y'all who don't know, Jasmine Simmons is my student. Okay, so before before she was even in college, she was my student. And in undergrad, how steadfast your parents were, how supportive they were, because you were trying to be a little bit of a student athlete, and there was a push pull between us, the program that was giving you scholarship and support and what you were trying to do athletically. And at some point, you and your family made a decision that your academic pursuits were number one and you weren't listening. And the reality is the folks from athletics, I still remember calling and yelling at me because the Simmons were not taking athletics advice. They were taking this. And now you're telling me the story from when you were 13. That's why, right? Um, because it was an our job was teaching you how to self-advocate and how to center yourself and how bad of a woman you are and how you can, it isn't your job to teach, but it's your job to also demand equity in all of those spaces and to be seen and heard and valued. And I still remember Shrank Hall, God help us, and how we sat and had those conversations. And it wasn't like, you or your parents even wavered with, well, yeah, we got to take this class and we may have to be late for practice and we may, yeah, we're going to be a speech, but, you know, I think with speech pathology was the undergrad, right? Mm, um, communication disorder. Communication, basically. CD. Yeah. And, and how it often with student athletes, what happens is, well, this major doesn't really work with practice times and it's going to, you're going to require clinical and you're going to require all these things, but it was no doubt with you, more importantly, with your parents that not, nope, we're, we're not going to listen to athletics. Um, the folks that are supporting our daughter's academics are saying, this is what we need to do. And you made a choice at that point. And I still remember the ire of our friend in athletics calling and yelling at me and me saying, you have to talk to her and her family. Um, and how you learned through all of those times to advocate for yourself, to center yourself, and to be the kind of claimer of space that I think helped in some of those experiences in, in grad school. Absolutely. You know, um, just my determination and just my support system and, and, you know, my determination has helped me to be where I am today. For sure. Well, and, you know, we, we, I, you've helped me learn about this, this disease, this, this Usher syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know much about it because it's pretty rare. So can you educate us a little bit about Usher syndrome 
And did you always know that you had Usher syndrome? Is that what caused your deafness and your hearing loss? You know, what does what does that Usher syndrome thing look like? Explain it to us and educate us, please, Doc. Sure, I can explain what Usher syndrome is. Usher syndrome is a uh, genetic disease or genetic um, condition that affects your hearing, vision, and balance. So there's three different types of Usher syndrome, and then there's subtypes within those types. So I have Usher syndrome type 1D, which is one of the rarer forms of Usher syndrome. And so that was the reason why I was born profoundly deaf. And at the age of seven, I was diagnosed with a condition called redness pigmentosa, and that is a key sign of Usher syndrome. So, and that is basically just a degeneration of your retina. So my vision has been deteriorating pretty much since the day I was born, but it just wasn't diagnosed until I was the age of seven. Throughout the years, I have noticed that my vision was getting worse. However, I was in denial about it. It wasn't until I was home for winter winter break from college. I, for whatever reason, whenever I open my eyes at nighttime, I'll open one one eye, and it looked like I was wearing sunglasses over one eye when I was staring at this nightlight. And it just looked very just cloudy. It just looked very dark. And then I closed that eye and opened the other eye. And it was so much fuller, bright. And at that moment, I knew that I had Usher syndrome. Well, I knew that I had eye condition. I just thought, you know, I was just living in denial. I was like, yeah, I don't have any eye condition. But at that moment, I just knew. And I just saw that night. And so throughout the years, my vision just slowly progressed. And I used to joke, oh, I'm not in drive by the time I'm 30. Like, ha ha ha. Just to kind of help cope with my vision loss. And it wasn't until the age of 28. So this past February, I was diagnosed as legally blind. And at that moment, I sold my car because the eye doctors were like, you should not be driving. And in my heart, I knew I shouldn't be driving anymore because I just lost that confidence once I got that diagnosis. And I just knew I needed to make that best decision for myself and for my safety and the safety of others. So I made that decision then, and it was very, very hard. It just, I definitely grieved at that moment because, you know, as a 28 year old, you know, giving up her car is, that is your independence. So it's just, it took a while for me to learn how to redefine what independence meant to me. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this. It's got to be scary. It's got to be scary for somebody who's born um, with significant hearing loss, who's navigated undergrad and graduate school, 
um, with all of the things, a whole black woman, a doctor, and then now we're, we have to admit to ourselves that we're legally blind and that the vision probably isn't going to get better unless medical science figures something out soon. Talk a little bit about those impacts and some of your worries. And then I know you have a lot of work. I mean, you're an audiologist by trade. That's your vocation. But your work is speaking and training and writing books and impacting. Talk a little bit about how that has been a refuge for you at a time when, you know, this Usher syndrome thing is impacting not just your hearing, not just your vision, but sometimes your balance, too. Can you can you ask the question again? I'm sorry. Yeah. So the first part and then I was like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I tend to ask too many questions. So. Talk a little bit about how, you know, obviously Usher syndrome and making the choice and realizing I have to give up my car. The car and the independence is one thing, but the reality that your vision is going at the same time that your hearing has been affected, at the same time it affects your balance and your whole job is these other these other senses, right? Talk a little bit about how you process that, how you work through that, especially as a person of color in those spaces. Mm -hmm. So when I sold my car, I want to note this because I remember how profound the feeling was. So earlier um, that year, I, I had lost my cat he passed away um, suddenly. And so I remember grieving. And so when I had sold my car, I remember feeling the same way that I felt when I lost my cat. And I remember feeling so silly because I'm like a car and, you know, your animal, like, how is that the same? And then I realized it dawned on me that it it is is the same. I was grieving. I was grieving for a loss of something. And that just was just it really opened my eyes that you know grief is the same thing. It could be different, you know, things that you lost, but ultimately you're going to feel that loss of something. And so that was really eye opening for me. And how I coped was I decided, you know, I sat down and analyzed, you know, where do I want my life, what direction I wanted my life to go. And I, even though I had all these successes, I was just wondering, I'm like, where do I want to go? Where do I self, see myself being happy? And writing a children's book was one of my lifetime goals. And that's what jump started that, you know, me selling my car and I decided, you know, I'm going to write this children's book. And it's called the Usher Syndrome series. And my very first book is covering a little black girl with, who has hearing loss. And I decided to write this book because for several reasons, you know, I did not have that representation growing up. And I never saw me in a children's book. Uh, when I say me, a uh, black 
girl who had hearing loss. You know, there's always books out there, you know, that have hearing loss or, you know, has something, but there's, I'm not seeing a Black character with a hearing loss. So that was something that was really important to me. And as I was writing this book, I noticed that it was my therapy. It gave me an outlet and I was able to express my thoughts and feelings through the book. And it was just, it was really helpful. And also I had started my Instagram account um, this past summer, and that also has been my therapy. And I got connected with a bunch of people in the Usher syndrome community virtually. And just, you know, all of us being able to share our stories is beautiful. You know, we were, we're all in different phases, stages of acceptance or denial or, you know, anger. And so it's just beautiful to be able to talk to different people and to be able to share our stories, our similarities and our differences. So this vision loss, you know, it's been a challenge, but it also has connected me to a, and the Usher syndrome community. Well, and you liking it, to grief, because you just talked about some stages of grief, acceptance, denial, anger, all these things, right? And I can imagine you're not you're not grieving the physical thing of your car. It wasn't like, oh, you had a Lambo, I guess. Maybe mm-hmm. not, Doc. But <laughs> it it's it's grieving independence. It's grieving a season of life that is now over. But the beauty of what I'm hearing from you is that then you have this other season that comes in. And the stuff that I love, so many things about you, and I'm proud of so many things about the the person and the woman you are, but this positivity, even when it's in a place of doggone. So now it is. And then at some point it's, okay, let me see what the plan is for me and how I can make impact. And the part that when we talked to Rochelle a couple of weeks ago about her journey to electrical engineering, and we talked to Shelby about her journey through um, through exercise physiology and all the things, one of the things that makes me the most proud of my students is every single one of you all aren't just committed to personal success, you're committed to impacting the world and making the world better, right? I mean, yeah, for all of us, we kind of outkicked our coverage. I mean, we're all in a pretty good spot. And so the best part is every single one of our students is so committed to saying, I'm going to make this world better. That's our work. Our vocation's our vocation, but our work is different, right? One of the things, the best, because you do consulting work, right, and speaking work, and I know that there are continued, continued challenges with communication with healthcare professionals, especially with people of color, you touched on it earlier. What are some of the advice you can give, not the patients, but the professionals, the people with all the degrees on how to enhance their communication with their patients to ensure that the patient isn't just having the questions that they ask answered, but the questions they aren't asking? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm just reading the question. 
as a healthcare professional, it is important for healthcare professionals to make sure they ask their patients if they have any questions. It's crucial so that way the patients are able to relay the information or process the information so that way they can walk away making sure they understand what was discussed in their doctor's appointment. For patients, it's always important to do your research before you go into the appointment. So then that way you know what to potentially expect and to formulate your questions so that way you have an understanding of what you want to cover before you leave the appointment. Yeah, that's well. And what about if a patient doesn't know what questions to ask? Right. How, how do you advise? Right. Because you're seeing patients all the time and they may have they just don't know. I mean, we have people who don't have access to quality health care. People who are low income, people who have, you know, there isn't just privilege on race and gender and, and religion and all the spaces. There's also privilege on education. So mm-hmm. patients may not know what to ask their health care provi- provider. How do you as a health care provider and a professional answer the questions that the patient isn't asking. Hey, you might wonder this. Hey, you might wonder that. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So how I counsel patients, you know, I counseling is crucial. You know, you want to break things down in the way that the patient will understand And then if they understand, they are able to ask questions. If you are just throwing big medical jargon in their faces, they may not even understand it to even articulate a question. So as a healthcare professional, it is so important that we explain things in layman terms and also chunk it so that way a patient can process and then move on to the next phase of counseling. Because when I counsel patients, I always explain, I'll be like, okay, this is the audiogram. I break it up. And I said, do you understand? Yes. Okay. No. Okay. What do you not understand? And then I try to explain it further. Um, So it just really depends. Sometimes you don't want to over explain things to patients, um, but then you don't also want to under explain. So each person is going to be different. So it's just as a healthcare professional is our job to assess the patient and see how we can best provide those the information to them as they would understand. Yeah, and that's that's about each person's feel in their practice, right? Uh, I may have to explain this differently. I had one healthcare professional say to me, sometimes I ask the patient to explain back what I said. Absolutely. Just to, hey, so what did I say again? Yeah, tell me in your own words what you heard, right? Mm -hmm. Just to ensure you're checking for understanding. Right. With a patient that you're you're delivering some news that might be hard. Hey, you know, just tell me what I said. Can you can you tell me like I'm a third 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 grader um, to just that's what one healthcare provider always said is that 
they would be in spaces, especially with patients that they knew there was a there was a an economic difference, there was a class difference, there may be a race difference, there might be an ability versus somebody who has a, a challenge difference. There might be all these things, making sure that you're asking the person, do you get saying to somebody, do you get it? Well, they're probably just gonna say, yeah. I mean, I say that to students all the time. Do you right. know? Sometimes I'll say, so what what did I just say? Can you explain to me what I just said in those chunks, which is really, really smart. So Jasmine, you got a whole deep, rich life now, you know, your whole Dr. Jasmine, which is crazy. Um, but looking ahead, you know, what are some of the aspirations that you have for the impact of some of your advocacy work, obviously your book series, and then your work and your teaching and your training and consulting with healthcare professionals? So where I see myself going is consulting with healthcare professionals, you know, educating them on how to have empathy towards their patients and also teaching accessibility within the healthcare world. It is so important to understand how to be more accessible to your patients because a lot of times different healthcare places you know, talk about how to be assess accessible, but they don't actually implement it. So I want to, as a consultant, to educate hospitals, healthcare professionals, businesses on ways to be more inclusive. Well, and sometimes people think equity is about sameness. I treat everybody fair. I treat everybody. Everybody ain't the same, though. I mean, if everyone was the same, we wouldn't need street cutouts to help people who needed to get their wheelchair or their walker or their whatever. We wouldn't need the button to say uh, the, the walk sign is on the walk. Sign. You know, everybody isn't the same. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest takeaways that you, I'm hearing you say is how to get healthcare professionals to deal with some of their personal, maybe shame is the word, pick shame as a word to say, well, but I feel so bad because I, I got to tra treat this Black person or this person with this differently. Equity is about, and inclusion is about treating everyone as individuals and seeing them rather than this colorblind, race-blind, gender-blind, class-blind, love-blind way of, oh, I treat everybody, but everybody ain't the same. So that doesn't create true inclusion and justice with people. What it does is it cripples people. And then people hide behind, well, I treat everybody the same. Well, folks ain't the same though. And so those are some of the pieces that I'm hearing you say on first how to recognize and own your own stuff, your own privilege, your own advantages, but then how to center other people and meet them where they are and recognize that, okay, this is a whole person of color and the history between us and the healthcare industry is really, really, really bad. And so that is a generational DNA thing that as a professional who's made an oath right, to do no harm, you have to then first start seeing the patient in their whole selves whether whoever you are. Is that fair? Absolutely. Sure, it is fair. So how do you envision your contributions, right, to ensuring more inclusion in healthcare? Um, perfect world. 
Dr. Jasmine can can dream, imagine 20, 30 years from now when it's all done. How do you envision your contributions making a difference to creating more inclusion, equity, and justice in healthcare spaces? So what is extremely important to me, as I said earlier in the talk, is making sure patients are seen, heard, and validated. That is crucial, and that's something what I would like to see going forward is just acceptance. You know, the BIPOC community is able to go to a doctor's appointment and regardless of the healthcare provider's race and feel like they can be heard and feel they can get their medical needs addressed. So that is something I would love to see. But in our society, that is something that is going to be a challenge. But, you know, my goal as a person is if I change one person's perspective, that that pr provider sees hundreds and hundreds of people. So those hundreds and hundreds of people are going to be impacted by that one provider. So it's just honestly just changing one provider's perspective at a time. Because then I'm spreading, you know, my mission through um, those people. Jasmine Simmons, I am so proud of you. Thank you so very much for your work, for your impact, for blessing the lives of people in this country, um, and for being a blessing to me. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me tonight. And it was absolutely a pleasure being here tonight. And I really enjoyed talking with you tonight and having these discussions. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website here adamspeak.com where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.